and early snow dusts the ground where we circle the sacred fire. Our spears are sharpened, and our hunters are ready for the last of the fertile season's great hunts, a hunt that will provide what we need to survive the long and barren winter. As the flame shadows dance on the walls of the cave, the spirit leader presides. She sings and dances and paints the images of our prey, beseeching the gods on our behalf. We know that finding the great herd and returning safe with our sustaining lifeblood will be difficult. We're a small and vulnerable tribe, and we recognize that without the help of the gods, our story will end. Our spirit leader ducks and swirls, dancing and singing amidst the flying embers, connecting us to the powers we need to succeed. We know our next chapter depends on this dancer, singer, storyteller, healer, helping us in our sacred conversations with the spirits. Now, way, way, way back in the day, deep inside that prehistoric cave, that twisting, chanting figure, that pre-art artist had a big job. She not only tended the sacred fire, she healed the sick, nurtured the tribal story and its rituals and celebrations, mentored its youth, and presided over all rites of passage, including birth, marriage, death, and of course, everything related to the fertility of the land and the family. Now, as they say, times have changed. Our spears are certainly more efficient. It looks like human beings have replaced herds of wildebeest as our prey. We also seem to have snuffed out the ancient ritual fire, and given the state of things, one could rightly say that we are once again on the eve of a crucial hunt. But unfortunately, the progeny of that whirling, signifying conjurer artist is a stranger to the functional center of our communities. But what if that weren't the case? What if there were places where those rapturous, spirit-stirring, healing, story-making, celebrating, teacher, problem-solving provocateurs were welcomed as full partners in the essential work of building the beloved community? What if there were places where social workers, teachers, medical professionals, organizers, job counselors, youth workers, and modern-day community artists worked side-by-side side helping, healing, and making needed change. If you're a regular listener to this show, you're probably thinking that the what if I've posed here is in fact the real thing. If that's the case, you're right. Actually, way right. Because the subject of this episode, Pillsbury House and Theater, is not just a one-off pilot or a historic artifact. It's a long-running, full-time, creative community center serving 30,000 people living in the Powderhorn and Central communities of Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1. Foundations. We'll start with a little history. Pillsbury House and Theater is one of five neighborhood social service centers operated by Pillsbury United Communities all across Minneapolis, Minnesota. As you'll hear, the Pillsbury story goes way back, long before the theater's founding in the 1990s, or the building of what is now known as Pillsbury House Neighborhood Center on Chicago Avenue in 1980. It starts with the original settlement house that Minneapolis flower magnates John and Charles Pillsbury built in 1905. 
At that time, Pillsbury House had a health clinic, women's employment center, youth clubs, and art classes that became a safe and inviting harbor for residents in need. Now, flash forward. In 2009, then Pillsbury United CEO Tony Wagner had what some thought was a weird idea. Recognizing the creative and organizational talent he had in the theater's co-artistic directors, Faye Price and Noel Raymond, he asked them if they would be interested in running both the theater and social service operations at the Pillsbury House location. They said yes, but with a caveat, that these two elements would be fully integrated as a community cultural hub with the goal of becoming, quote, a new model for nonprofit human service work that recognizes the power of arts and culture to stimulate community participation, investment, and ownership. Over the past 13 years, this vision has become a reality. This means that human and health services have become a primary gateway for Pillsbury's cultural work in the community and the arts have become a catalyst for community development. At the ground level, this shows up as creative collaborations involving artists and human service professionals and community members across all of Pillsbury's programs. Bottom line, Pillsbury House has shifted its focus from problem-based triage work to creative community development, from a work of charity to a work of art. Like most artistic endeavors, Pillsbury is a constant work in progress, This doesn't mean that they're mercurial or unpredictable. Quite the contrary. They are very clear that both their priorities and their accountability come from their relationship with the community and the creative integrity they bring to all of their work on the stage and in the streets. What it does mean is that they are constantly asking questions about the intentions and impact of their work. In May of 2022, we talked with Pillsbury's creative community liaison, Mike Hoyt, producing director, Signe Haraday, and Noel Raymond, the organization's senior director of narrative arts and culture. Our conversation began with one of those persistent questions. Welcome to the show. Where are you hailing from this fine morning? Yeah, we're speaking to you from the occupied homeland of the... Dakota and Ojibwe and Anishinaabe people in Minnesota territory. So if you don't mind, I'd like to begin by stating the obvious. Uh, We all know if you don't know where you are, it's pretty hard to get where you want to go. And I guess another way of putting this is that if you don't know the story of your place, you can't even begin to move that story to a better place. So we all know that some folks regard what is referred to as a land acknowledgement as a kind of pro forma progressive ritual. But I know for you and Pillsbury House, paying respect to the land and its indigenous history is foundational to your work. Signe, could you speak to that? As culture workers and community members, understanding who we are and where we are and how we are in relationship to the places that we are is not only central to our work, but is a part of our past, present, and future. And I think as that relates to our siblings in the Indigenous communities, both 
in our close vicinity, but also across these Midwests, means that we have to understand that harm has happened, that genocide has persisted despite the dominant narrative that harm did not happen. And as culture workers who aim to speak truth and invite our community in to have difficult conversations, holding the complexity of being a land-based center for community means that we have to wrestle with the continued legacy of colonialism, even as we strive to decolonize our minds, our work, and our actions, and to situate ourselves and be humbled by the possibility of relationship and healing. Noel, you want to jump in? Our reckoning with the history of settlement houses and the colonial practices that those came out of, regardless of the good they were trying to do in community, and specifically some of the nonprofit industrial complex ways that we continue to contribute to harm in some communities. We're reckoning with all of that as we're, we've embarked on the process to create a land acknowledgement, which doesn't feel like acknowledgement doesn't feel like the right word or the right action, but we're trying to think of a longer thread of redress and reckoning and transformation of harm and trying to figure out exactly what that means and how that's a thread of our ongoing work and not a statement we put on our website and say before our performances. Yeah, it feels very much um, like it's shaping as a settler acknowledgement as well. Yeah, <laughs> right. And yeah. That, um, you know, Pillsbury Nine Communities, which is the organization that we're a part of, is over 140 years old. And it essentially became an organization at the same time that the city was incorporated. So that's only 10 years removed from the Lakota uprising in the U.S. Lakota War. So the country of this region was very different. And the founding of this organization as an entity was enmeshed in all of that history. And I would just add too, you know, as a black person who is the descendant of both colonizers and folks whose labor was stolen and exploited to, to build these United States of America, I think that it could be easy to say that we make a choice to disconnect ourselves from the past and put ourselves squarely in the camp of we are the do-gooders, we are the better than, and that is a trap and that is not true. And so I think what you hear in the conversation that we're trying to have right now is a commitment to recognize our interconnected complacency and our interconnected responsibility to do better. And I'll just add two to that. As you're talking about origin story, we've been doing an oral history project with some folks at the U of M. And part of what they've found out in doing that work is the history of the original Pillsbury House, which was in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, and actually moved when that area started to be developed by some folks who were looking to gentrify that neighborhood. And 
as far as we can tell at this moment, Pillsbury was complicit in supporting that effort and co-opting the voice of the community that was trying to work against that effort and moved in order to facilitate that development, which is a piece of our history that I did not know until this student really started looking deeply into that. So how has that newly revealed history shown up in the way you approach your work every day? I think, you know, that's sort of emblematic of a lot of the ways that we're looking at our work these days is like to really deeply excavate what has been happening in community and how we have been contributing to either the harm or the healing and to try to firmly plant ourselves on the side of the healing while acknowledging and making up for the harm, which also, you know, given where we are located now, which is at the Pillsbury House and Theater is at the corner of 35th Street and Chicago Avenue, which is in the neighborhood where George Floyd was murdered. And the impacts of that event continue to resonate in our community and to drive a lot of what what we're thinking about doing and how we're thinking about doing. So you've really stepped forward into one of the core questions I wanted to ask. As you pointed out, you're part of a community with a long and complicated history that is literally changing under your feet. The ripples from George Floyd, the historic conditions that represents the pandemic are all roiling out there. So given this, how do you characterize what it is you do in the world? And before you get into specifics, really, what are you trying to do as an institution, as a positive presence in the community that you serve? I think for me as an artist and a human being, I think I'm trying to live up to the dreams and the expectations of my ancestors and trying to create the conditions of a better world for my grandchildren. That's a little bit like the 10,000 foot view, but I think that inside of this organization, daily we are setting a path towards that being possible as an organization and a and an interconnected group of people who recognize the role of art the role of healing the role of community in creating a better world where everyone in community is valued where people have the ability to make choices about their lives who see power in their voice who feel a sense of connection and compassion and empathy for others around them, who who feel like they belong. And I think that's the work that we have been doing and will continue to do. We can get into the specifics, but that's the 10,000-foot view from my perspective. Noel, I know that when you started to define what a creative community development organization could be, you really wanted to get beyond the problem-based fixer triage mission that so many social service organizations fall into. Could you describe what characterizes Pillsbury as an opportunity possibility driver in the community? Very simply, I feel like what I see happening here every day and what I live into intentionally every day is 
trying to connect people, to help people connect to one another and then resource them to dream up things they want to do together and do it right to to help people access their own creativity and their own power and then put some underneath it leveraging whatever we can bring to the table to help manifest that um and, and telling stories and creating art that gives people fuel for that and inspiration for that is a big piece of what that resource is that we use as the oomph one of the most striking things about pillsbury is the obvious role it has taken as a catalyst for growing community Building on Noel's point, Pillsbury works to create the connections and trust needed to nurture and grow a place where people want to live and raise their children. In his description of Pillsbury's work in the community, Mike references and takes issue with a May 2022 Atlantic Monthly article that he feels gives short shrift to the essential power of a community's connection to both its story and its culture. So it's essentially someone that will making the argument that the one single choice that parents can do for the benefit of their children based on data and research was to choose where they live. And when it, it was in a way talking about social determinants of health and how your zip code is at least 60% of the impact or, you know, whether or not you will graduate high school, make a good living or whatever. But it was framed in the context of not challenging why people choose where they live. And really it was, for me, I read it as a blanket approval for white flight 2.0, right? Or class flight. And especially in this moment, in this time in, the, in our country. And so I agreed with the research on, and that zip code matters, <laughs> but it completely voided the decision or the choice that exists as well, which is to stay and remain in the community in which you live in and to raise a family if you choose to do so and to be in conversation with your kids about the structural conditions that exist and what our role is in proving it for the people that we live amongst. And it was infuriating because that's that wasn't part of the equation. And I feel like that is so rooted in the work that we do here and that I think about as an artist is that we we have accountabilities to one another, to our communities, and that what we practice as community members or artists is that we practice neighboring in all the sort of bountiful, plentiful ways, generous ways that we can, because we're committed to staying and we're committed to investing not just in our families and our kids, but the outcomes of our neighbors and their neighbors and the people three blocks down. And so that's how I tend to think about the work, both in where I live, but also how I get to show up in this work at Pillsbury House and Theater. So, Mike, you're talking about this Atlantic article that describes why people might decide to go raise their children in one place or another. And it occurs to me that Pillsbury House, in its current iteration, has at its center the amplification, the celebration of reasons to live in your community, which really exemplifies the fact that Pillsbury has shifted from we define ourselves based on the things that are going wrong here to we define ourselves by the vitality of the creative capacity of this community to forge a different future. And, Noel, maybe I'm romanticizing this because we work together on the foundations of that shift, but 
It seems like a significant piece of Pillsbury's history. Maybe to make it clear, Pillsbury House and Pillsbury House Theater coexisted in the same building at 35th and Chicago for a long time and mutually reinforced one another, but weren't structurally together for a long time. So Pillsbury House Theater produced professional theater, did some youth programs in collaboration sometimes with Pillsbury House, but Pillsbury House had some more traditional social service-y kinds of activities based on funding and perceived needs over many years, all of which were important to the community. Everybody in this neighborhood has a story about the Pillsbury. They call it the Pillsbury because everybody in this neighborhood has been here for something, whether that was to use the weight room or they did martial arts classes in the dance studio, or they were a kid in the daycare, or they used to come here for the produce giveaways on the weekends. There's a myriad of different activities that have connected almost everyone in this community to this place since 1980 when this building was built. Um, but in 2008, when the economy tanked, we created a, a formal strategy to put the theater and the social services together and arts integrate them partially because resources were scant and we needed a new approach to things and we felt like creativity was the thing that might help us get through a difficult moment and so figuring out how to leverage creative practice and add it to everything we were doing and help everybody in community access their own creativity has changed the way we're thinking about things. But as you said, from a deficit model to an asset-based model, and part of it was in response to this neighborhood had been characterized for a long time by the violent things that have happened here. Right at that time, there had been a stabbing at 38th in Chicago of somebody getting off a bus. And that narrative had dominated this community for a long time. And we knew that there's a whole other set of things going on that are super generative and super creative and that that narrative is a tiny piece of a much greater story. So part of the effort in creating Pillsbury House and Theater, which was the formal integration of Pillsbury House social service stuff and the Pillsbury House Theater art stuff, was to flip that narrative and to really help highlight and support and resource and increase the creative things that were happening in this community and the bazillion artists who have been making work here and doing community-based work forever. Part two, it's not hard to see it when you see it. So I'm gonna ask you to share some specific examples of all this, but before I do that, Signe, for people listening to this who might be thinking, okay, You've got a social service agency and a theater, and at some point they're joining forces, and I just don't understand how that translates on the street in the real world of human services and healthcare and all that. Could you describe how that marriage, how that integration works? I respond by sharing that for people who are in relationship with us, either as participants, collaborators, community members, it doesn't feel strange. People come to this building to pick up their CSA, and it happens to be the same place where they come to see theater, or maybe it's the same place where their child 
is getting early education. And in their early education is having a dance class or a tactile learning experience with touching and feeling that is arts related or that they're singing together. Or for people who move through this space and then our community, that doesn't feel like an anomaly. It just makes sense to us. And so I think that's how it shows up. And for people who are less familiar, I would just invite people to ev evoke their own imagination. What would it feel like to you to be able to go to a place where people treat you well, who greet you, who make you feel welcomed, who are invested in helping you navigate a resource perhaps, where you could bring an idea of something that you want to make or create, that you could be connected with other community members in conversation or through a memoir writing class like we have for some of our seniors in community. And that as you imagine what that might be like, that place might also be where you get your taxes done because that's a resource that's available here. Mm -hmm or it might be the place where you see that there are children there. So you see that your neighbor had a baby. And you're like, hey, if you're thinking about childcare, you're right up the street. I think that it's not hard to see it when you see it. And I think the compartmentalization of the nonprofit industrial complex and the ways in which the medical industrial complex and the prison industrial complex and all of these things invite a kind of segmentation of our lives into buckets that someone else needs to solve for. And I think what we see as thriving community is deep integration. And so that's what the work really tries to do. And art is the thread that binds us together. And if you think about the word social service, like art is an unbelievable social ser service to society, right? So how do we exclude art ever from what we consider to be social services. Yeah, and I would just add on to all of that. Sometimes we experience it even just with the artists that we work with, or I've experienced this myself as an artist coming into a role here, or the teaching artists, for example, who maybe have trained in a very specific discipline, their careers, they've reached a level of rigor or mastery, and they're invited to, to step into a position that can encompass so many more things that are relevant to their lives, but maybe weren't relevant to their practice in a professionalized context. And I think that's what we all experience to a degree and what people experience in relationship to their many entry points into the work here. And I think the exciting thing is that it, it can start at 16 months and end at 106, <laughs> that the relationship can change and be multi-layered, but it will always be here. It just might take a different form depending on where you're at in life as well and where you feel compelled to connect to it. So if I could share another lens for understanding why I think what is happening at Pillsbury is what I might call radical common sense. I mean, everybody in this community, individuals, families, neighborhood groups, has a worldview, right? A take on how things work or don't work and a story about their place in that. And Signe, to your point about those institutionalized bubbles people have to deal with, whether it's healthcare or criminal justice or social service systems, nobody in this community lives their lives in these separate compartments. A person's health and their work and their family situations are all interconnected. They're all one story. So it makes sense 
that when you come through the door at Pillsbury House, your whole story is welcomed and celebrated and engaged in a variety of ways. One of the things about this place that has been true for me personally and professionally, and I think is true for lots of people, is that this is also a place where we recognize our connection to things and people that have come before us. And to say that, as you were talking about, people don't live their lives in buckets, in bifurcated ways, but we also don't live our lives in a singular moment. And I think what's exciting about Pillsbury House and Theater to me is that this is a place where we are connected to legacies and ancestors and, and the past in a way that is not nostalgic, that's not romanticized, but is lived. This building feels like a living archive that is a place that vibrates the experiences of so many people, luminaries, as well as, you know, regular folks. Well, that's a great image, a living archive. Noel, how do you see that showing up in your everyday experience? I think when we're working on a main stage show and the actors come in and they come through the lobby and there might be a couple of people sitting there waiting for the bus and charging their phones. And there might be a parade of children from ages two to five coming through and saying hello or tripping over their shoelaces. And there might be a couple of folks in, a, in the adult day program for folks with physical and cognitive disabilities. And so artists are moving through a whole world of life, which is very different than if you walk into a dark theater with no bodies in it and no life happening. And we're on the, at the stop on the busiest bus line in the city at the corner of a busy bustling neighborhood where life is happening. And we hear from artists all the time that it makes such a difference to, to walk through and then carry that into the room where they're making the work, that there's a tangible resonance of that life inside the space where they're creating their work that, that informs everything that happens, that gives them a feeling of who they're doing this with and for and about. And, and I think that infuses everything. And same for the little kids. They see all of these adult artists and then they're working with a teaching artist who can then reference this is what's happening. Sometimes they peek through the door and say, hey, what's happening in here? You know? <laughs> I mean, there's interruptions, but also connections being made all over the place that feels natural here, that's a part of our DNA, but that's different than uh, other social service organizations or arts organizations because of the togetherness. It's a funny thing. Like we say, if you're having a down day, all you really have to do is look at the children for a little while <laughs> and it sends these endorphins to your brain. Everything's okay. Look at the children, look at the children. But I think to what you're speaking to, Noel, that's the gift too. Like I remember once thinking of myself as a social activist as well. An elder activist was saying, if you're not working with young people, then you have no business being an activist because who and what and why are you here then? And I think that's what's so dynamic about this building is it is purpose grounding. If you are not grounded in purpose, being in this building will get you grounded in purpose because it's all around you, the whys and the how comes and the for who. And that is a different way of approaching, I would say, life and art and their intercommingling. Part three, 
stories. So I'm going to ask you to add a dimension to this conversation, which is if there are some threshold moments, some stories, some events, some experiences that you've had related to Pillsbury House and its work that really personifies what you're up to. Oh, there's, there's so much. You know, because I live really close by, I get to see a lot of folks that come through and be a part of programs here. Maybe a year or so ago, our Chicago Avenue project, a youth theater ensemble, had a production, and it was still on our stage pre-COVID. You know, when there's, what is it, fourth through sixth graders performing, and this whole gaggle of 16, 17-year-olds came through from the neighborhood that just showed up that day. And they were all former performers from Chicago Avenue Project. And they just came. They came to support. It's <laughs> emotional. Yeah. These kids. And they don't, they could have been doing anything. They could have been running around. They could have been at the mall. They could have been playing video games or just hanging out at the park. But they chose to come here to support these kids they actually didn't really have any connection to at all. But it was because they had a connection to this place and to their experiences here. And I think that they recognize the opportunity that was being presented for these, this next generation of younger performers who were just taking this bold step onto a stage in front of an audience. And those are the moments that remind me of the thing that Signe spoke to around how time and relationship are, it's not just this moment. Those kids were living in their past, living in their futures and the present moment and art and creativity and community connection were all at the center of that. And it's a small gesture, but it means a lot, especially if it's a group of teenagers showing up. It's taking time out of their schedule to support some little ones. Big time. And you know, what those kids were doing was taking place in a moment of shared meaning of community across time. It's about the history that, Signe, that you referenced as a connection to something other than how important you are, but actually a connection to the next generation of kids who are coming up because they knew what was happening on that stage. I wish every kid had access to that kind of an experience. Yeah, and I'll just give you another example. This past summer, so that would be summer of 2021, we did a production of a play called What to Send Up When It Goes Down by Alicia Harris. And the piece is unapologetically Black, unapologetically for Black people, to Black people as a way to hold space for both Black joy, but also Black grief. And it was COVID. So we performed the play in our parking lot to the south of our building on Chicago Avenue. And there's so many things that were amazing about that. You know, audience members often said, I came and got what I didn't know I needed in terms of how we move through collective trauma that they're having access in a theatrical experience to to think about transforming trauma into some moments of healing. I don't want to be hyperbolic here. I don't think we solved all the things, but we created a safe place for people to grieve and to laugh and to be together. And one of the parts of that project that I don't often talk about, but is really exciting to me was 
or we're farming outside, which means that there's speaker systems and there's no covering around the swear words under the music or the screams or the laughter. Black people. Yeah. Black people. Yeah. We're going to get in so much trouble for being gathered together like this black people. Too bad. Too bad. This is my face. It literally poured out over into our neighbors' homes, their backyards, their kitchens. And we passed around some letters to our community, letting them know this was going to happen. But a neighbor who lives across the street shared with me how much he appreciated being a part of that ritual over and over again. That he didn't have to be sitting in the actual ritual circle that we created, but to be adjacent to it was powerful for him. And I don't know that our neighbors are ready for that all the time, (laughs) but I think for a neighborhood that has been reeling from the mounting traumas that this community has had to navigate over the last two years, it brought healing to more than just everyone in that circle. And that's something that that feels just really special. And I don't know another place in the world that could have done that. And I've got one from way back. We were doing a production of Streetcar Named Desire years and years ago. And a high school choir group bought out a weekend matinee and came and the show started and we got almost to intermission and there was a whole lot of buzzing happening and at intermission, I was in it. So I wasn't entirely sure what was going on, but at intermission, stage manager came back and said, they don't think they can stay through the rest of the play. They didn't realize the content. (laughs) Does it feel all right? Wonderful, honey. I don't like a bed that gives much. There's no door between the rooms and Stanley. Will it be decent? They don't have the parental permissions for what the content is. And we were like, it's streetcar. But so we ended up stopping the show. And instead of the students leaving, we had a big old conversation about art and the complicated themes in art and of that play and why it's important. And, and again, I feel like that could have left everybody feeling like robbed Mm. of something, the artists and the audiences, but instead it created a connection and was a super powerful conversation that brought us all together after a moment of intense friction. And I feel like, again, that's emblematic of our approach to things. We want to figure out how we all do this together and not just do our thing and have you consume it or take your thing and present it but really make this work for all of us. So you're describing what I would call the healthy functioning of a community, that we live in a world where many institutions set their course and they lock in the parameters, and that's it. This call and response that you just described, which in my experience is an abiding characteristic of Pillsbury House and the way that it operates in the world. Pillsbury isn't driving this bus. We are driving this bus, and we are the community. This, is not, this isn't revolutionary. This is common sense. This is actually what an, a village, a neighborhood, a community needs in order to thrive. And if it's not happening, that's a red flag. 
Yeah, sometimes it's as simple as making choices that are a little outside of what we expect. Like another small example is once in a while in the summertime, we do this thing called lunch in Chicago where we just pull a grill out on the corner and invite people to bring food to cook and share with folks walking by or waiting for the bus. And, and it's usually lovely and it lasts an hour or two and then we're cleaned up and done. But we'll have 30, 40 people roll through and hang out and talk. And, but one year, my, my neighbor across the alley, Robert, he works for the city. He works in the recycling waste management for the city. And one day he rolled by and gave a shout out and waved from his truck. And 20 minutes later, he was parked on the side of the road bring in two dozen hot dogs and buns just to throw on the grill because he recognized that, hey, this is something, it's in my neighborhood and this matters. I'm going to go off my route and probably make someone's recycling late that week just to be part of this thing. And it's, those are just those small moments and gestures, but I think that they're the sort of cumulative impact of making those choices that are a little outside of what we think we should be doing or what's expected of us. You know, if there's a through line to all of the stories we just heard, it's that going outside of what's expected experience that Mike shared in his anecdote. The, the really interesting thing is that that kind of behavior can become infectious. And once it catches on, it can weave itself into a community's culture. I see this as an indelible symptom of a changing story. Slowly but surely, unexpected moments of generosity or compassion or playfulness become more prevalent. And over time, it becomes a regular thing. Clearly, this has happened at Pillsbury. These stories bring us to the end of the first of our two Pillsbury-focused episodes. In our next episode, we'll explore how the past two tumultuous years of the pandemic and the continuing impact of the George Floyd story has affected Pillsbury House and the community it serves. We'll also hear how these momentous events are helping shape what comes next in the Pillsbury saga. Until then, this has been Change the Story, Change the World, which is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland, and our theme and soundscape are by the fantabulous Judy Munson. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.com. And our inspiration rises up from the mysterious but ever-present presence of Uke 235. Until next time, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word.